This is They Create Worlds, episode 129, The Crash That Almost Was. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, we hope you have all enjoyed that wonderful year we just had and we're off on a brand new adventure in 2021 i don't think anyone enjoyed the year we just had jeffrey let us never speak of this year again (laughs) that's right it's 2021 now and while things are not immediately different uh, hopefully in a few months they will be yes happy 2021 happy new year happy brand new start happy never mentioning 2020 again So since we don't want to talk about 2020 ever again, and we don't want to have any kind of near disaster like that was, (laughs) let's focus on a much more entertaining near disaster, that being the crash that almost was in the mid-1990s. That's right. In our last episode, our very special Christmas episode, we talked about the beginning of what you would really call the modern video game industry, as in there's a pretty definitive break because of the crash between what Atari and all of those companies were doing than what Nintendo did and what the market has continued to do ever since. We talked about kind of the beginning of that from a North American perspective with the launch of the NES in 1985, the bringing back of an industry. So now we're going to bookend that period by flashing forward to the end of the 16-bit era and to a period where there really legitimately was almost a second crash of the video game industry. There was a decline. There was a real decline, and that decline lasted for a couple of years. It never got as bad, however, as the Great Crash, obviously. Everyone kind of lived to fight another day kind of explore the factors that led to the market nearly collapsing, describe how the market did nearly collapse, and then go into a little bit of detail on why it ultimately continued to putter along. A lot of this material is stuff that we have talked about here and there. So we have done console wars stuff, we have done general video game history stuff. Usually it's been like, you know, five or ten minutes of a larger episode. This time, we're going to spend a whole episode kind of deep diving into this period to see what was going on, kind of the period between 1993 and 1996, in the United States specifically, which is where the market nearly fell apart. We're not going to really cover what happened in Europe and what happened in Japan. It is purely just the United States that was crashing, not a global game industry crash. Yeah, I mean, Europe had its own things going on, but the European market was very different. We alluded to this a little bit in our Sega episode that we just did recently. There was stuff going on there. Europe was in recession. Nintendo and Sega were having some price wars. The long, vibrant computer game market in the country was finally starting to fall apart a little bit in the face of globalization. So Europe had a lot of things going on, but kind of different from the issues in the U.S. that we're talking about. You know, Japan had real issues as well, just due to the larger economic ennui that had taken hold, uh, the so-called lost decade. 
But again, the stories that we're going to tell, the stories that we have best documented with our sources is specifically what was going on in the U.S., which, of course, was still a very, very important market uh, in this time period for the global industry. Since this starts in 93 and 96, the Super Nintendo has been out there. We're looking at the coming of the N64 and the eventual PlayStation. We're seeing that 3D transition here within this time period, right? That's right. We've had a rather brutal console war that really peaked in 1992 and 1993. During that console war, there were a lot of great successes for Sega and even for Nintendo, even though Nintendo lost its primary place. There were some games that did phenomenally well. Capcom had a massive hit with Street Fighter II in 1992, sold 6 million units worldwide. Mortal Kombat sold... 5 million or so units in 1993 and became a real game changer for Sega in their fight for market share because, of course, Nintendo famously censored their version of the game. So there's been rising action in the industry, and the industry has hit a new high in 1993 of somewhere between 4.5 and 5 billion. There are several different sources that track numbers during this period. None of them agree with each other, unfortunately. They're all estimates, which is part of the problem. You know, the video game industry is unique when compared to the book publishing industry or the music industry or the motion picture industry, where there are reliable numbers, industry-wide numbers that tend to be released, particularly in music and movies. You get box office charts every week. You see who won the box office. You get music charts. You see who sold the most CDs or who sold the most singles every week, and it's tracked week in and week out and released publicly. The video game industry has never had that. There are tracking organizations, most notably the NPD, that do estimate sales, but they are estimates. The companies themselves don't cooperate in that. They only release them in dribs and drabs to the public. They mostly just make them available in private research reports that you have to pay five figures to get a hold of. It's very secretive compared to the uh, other industries, the other entertainment industries. In this period, it was even worse because uh, leading trackers like NPD didn't even have access to a good cross-section of data. No tracker ever has complete access. Any tracker is always working off estimates. And of course, math people have gotten very good at estimating over the centuries. If you have a good cross-section of your market, you really can come up with a reliable estimate about the rest of that market. But in this period, the NPD group was missing some key retailers, most notably Walmart, who refused to provide them data. So the NPD models in this period were actually very unreliable. NPD basically disavows any of its numbers before 1995. It's adjusted more recently most of the numbers in this period as it's gotten more information. That's kind of a long-winded explanation, but I just wanted to make it very clear that not only do we deal in estimates in this time period, but the estimates can vary widely because of the inherent inaccuracy in the way things are being recorded and reported. However, the trends seem to match up pretty well. So even though everyone has different numbers, 
the way those numbers are fluctuating and dropping seem to be about the same. So we still have some kind of clear idea of what we're looking at here. The market peaked in 1993. 1993 was a banner year. It was the height of this war. It's when Mortal Kombat came out and lit the industry on fire. It's the 16-bit era at its glory days. Exactly. And so the market topped out there somewhere between $4.5 and $5 billion. That was a new high. It took a long time for the industry to reach a new height after the crash because it had topped out at $3.2 billion before the crash. And then it collapsed all the way to probably around $200 million. We talked about in the NES episode how the 85 numbers are kind of weird and not altogether trustworthy. But they probably topped out around $200 million. Then it took several years for that to build back up again. Even though the industry was successful, you don't go from $200 million back up to $3, 4000000000 overnight. It just takes some time. By 1993, the industry had arrived. Everything was going great. Fierce competition was spurring things forward. Everything was wonderful. But there's just one problem. We're getting near the end of this console generation, and technology is changing very fast. The transition between the Atari era and the NES era was not really, in a lot of ways, that huge a transition. Now, I'm not so much talking about the Atari VCS, which obviously was very primitive technology, going all the way back to 1977. But if you look at something like the ColecoVision or the Atari 7800 that Atari was supposed to release in 1984 and didn't because of the crash, the NES really isn't that different overall from what was just starting to appear at the end of that crash period. And we have to remember the the NES is originally the Famicom. The Famicom does come from 1983. It's a 1983 system. Now, due to using improving technology in the form of specialized chips that they would put in the NES games, the memory mapper chips and other special chips that started to appear in the late 1980s, a late generation NES game is very different from an early generation NES game, therefore puts even more distance between itself and something like a ColecoVision. But the types of games that you were seeing on an NES were fairly similar, even if they were often better done, than the types of games that you were seeing on a 7800 or on a ColecoVision. There was definitely more emphasis on side-scrolling levels and bigger worlds, The tile-based graphic system of the NES lent itself to creating those kinds of stages. But it was largely the same kind of action. Then when you get from the NES era to the Super NES and Genesis era, there really isn't that much difference in terms of types of games and gameplay. You had better animation, you had more colors, you could do more levels of parallax scrolling, You could uh, do advanced shading of sprites, which gave them more depth and more vibrancy. You could do better multicolored sprites. You could have more items on the screen without flicker. All of these things were true. I mean, look at the original Castlevania and look at Super Castlevania 4. Look at Super Contra and look at Contra 3 The Alien Wars. 
pretty similar overall, right, in terms of gameplay. I'm not talking about in terms of fancy explosions and, and graphics, but in gameplay, pretty similar, right? It's very, very similar. I'm moving left to right. I have a whip. I can throw some things out. My overall gameplay is very, very, very similar. However, it looks prettier. I can have more things I'm beating up. I can have all of these fun little graphics and stuff. Going through that tower as I see this full mode 7 going on, it looks really, really pretty. But ultimately, yeah, I think you're right. The game, as far as gameplay goes, is the same. I'm still pushing a button to jump. I'm pushing a button to use special items, using a button to do some attacks. Even though I have more buttons, those buttons are really just removing the need to have different button combinations I would have on original Nintendo. Because usually Hmm. with Castlevania there, I'd have to push like up and the attack button or down, up and then attack button or whatever it was. It was all sorts of weird little combination buttons in order to get everything you wanted to do done. Or say if you're playing Castlevania 3 and you had to switch characters, you had to pause or swap characters, do this other crazy stuff. The gameplay is really just the same. It's a side-scrolling platformer. There's not much innovation there. Exactly. The one area where there certainly was some innovation, the one kind of big new genre was the fighting game genre. Those games didn't really exist in a meaningful way on the NES. There weren't really enough buttons on the controllers to do it justice. You kind of needed the bigger, bolder sprites and animation in order to make that look and feel interesting. So games like Street Fighter II Mortal Kombat really did bring that generation something new. Then look at what both of those companies did with those games, what both Williams and its uh, console partners did with Mortal Kombat and what Capcom did with Street Fighter. They released so many sequels that added a new move here and a new character there, but weren't huge leaps forward over what came before. I mean, you look at Super Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers 3, which are games that are only three years apart in technology. Because remember, because of the chip shortage, we didn't get Super Mario Bros. 3 until 1990, but it came out in 1988 in Japan. So there's only three years difference between Super Mario Bros. and Super Mario Bros. 3. But look how amazingly different the gameplay of those two games are. Super Mario Bros. 3 is way ahead of what Super Mario Brothers could ever hope to be. You would never go back to Super Mario Brothers after playing Super Mario Brothers 3. I mean, you would just, you know, if you like it and want to reminisce, but no one would ever say that Mario 3 and Mario Brothers are are anywhere near each other in terms of capabilities, right? You don't have the overworld map thing going on. You don't have the sense of adventure you have going on where you're trying to do each individual world where you lose and then you can decide, oh, I want to go a different path on this thing. Yep. When you played the original Super Mario Brothers, there was one path, one through eight. That's all you get. Yeah, and all the different power-ups and different variety of stages. I mean, it's it's night and day. Mm-hmm. You look at Street Fighter 2 versus Super Street Fighter 2, or if you prefer Street Fighter 2 Turbo versus Super Street Fighter 2, because the speed difference is definitely very welcome. You have a couple of new fighters. Your old fighters get a couple of new moves. They're very similar games. There's not this same sense that I'm buying this sequel 
and look how much better it is. In some cases, there's even de-evolution. I would, for instance, contend that Final Fight 2 is an inferior game to the original Final Fight, other than, I mean, thankfully, they finally got two-player play in it. But I'm just talking about in terms of the looks, the presentation, and everything else, it almost feels like a downgrade. There's another game, I would say, that would argue the same thing. You look at Super Castlevania 4, mm-hmm. and then you look at Castlevania Dracula X, also known as Rondo of Blood. Yeah. That thing looks terrible. <laughs> It looks absolutely terrible. When I first saw that game, I was just like, why can't I do multi-directional whipping here? (laughs) Why does the graphics look washed out? The colors Uh aren't as vibrant. It looks like someone just sort of took a 8-bit Nintendo game and just kind of sort of slash dashed it into a Super Nintendo. Right. You know, it's the same thing. And we're picking on Nintendo here, but we can say the same things about what's going on with Sega. Sonic the Hedgehog was a really big deal because it felt like a breath of fresh air because Nintendo platformers, as well-designed as they were, and, you know, Super Mario World is a great game, and I would personally take Super Mario World over Sonic any day. There was a sense that the original Sonic the Hedgehog was a breath of fresh air because it just went so much faster, and it rewarded you for getting better at the game. That's one of the things that Yuji Naka famously said about why he was compelled to make the Sonic gameplay the way he did, is that he felt like no matter how good he got at Mario, it always took him the same amount of time to get through Mario. Now, I realize today we've got speedrunning communities and people are cutting seconds off of their time all the time, but remember, we're just talking about the point of view of your average game player. We're not talking about, like, deliberately trying to speedrun content. What he said is, you know, no matter how good I get at Mario, it always takes me the same amount of time to beat the stages because at a certain point, the stages only go so fast. And so he wanted a game like Sonic where you can zoom through stuff even faster the more comfortable you get with what's going on around you. So that was seen as a breath of fresh air, and Sonic uh, was very popular. There was diminishing returns on that as well. The gameplay of Sonic did not change very much after that. You know, They added new characters. They added two-player. They added Tails, who had different abilities. Obviously, there are changes between games. I'm not saying nothing changed. Between Sonic and Sonic and Knuckles, a spread of four games, one, two, three, and Knuckles, you're basically still playing the same game you played in Sonic 1, except that now you have a couple of different types of bonus modes and a couple of characters that proceed through levels differently because they have different abilities. Again, it doesn't feel like the same kind of leap you were necessarily seeing in sequels in an earlier era. And I think that's something to be said. I I know we harp back to the Nintendo era with this. Nintendo seemed to have gotten that in the 8-bit era. Practically every single sequel to any kind of successful franchise, they tried something different. Even though it's considered by many to be sort of a black sheep of the family, but I still like the game a lot. Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Compare that to Zelda 1, which is a top-down, explore-the-dungeon thing. Zelda 2 Adventure Link, you've got side-scrolling combat. You have an overworld top-down view where you're just using that as navigating, sort of like in Mario 3. There were a lot of 8-bit games on the Nintendo that really did that kind of thing, where if there was a sequel, they didn't do 
the same thing, they innovated. They tried something completely different. Sometimes they were successful. Sometimes they were mediocre. Sometimes they were just, oh, why did you even do this? But still, <laughs> they were very, very innovative. They tried to push the system. You didn't get that so much in the 16-bit era. There was still that going on, but not so much. And I think it's something that was especially needed in that time period because there were only a limited number of different types of games you could make. Moving ahead to the 3D era, you know, there are a lot of successful series that maybe only iterated a little bit between series. But there are so many different things you can do in a polygonal space that you had lots of different types of gameplay. You had the survival horror of Resident Evil. You had the stealth gameplay of Metal Gear Solid. You had the 3D platforming of Mario 64. You had a very different take on 3D platforming in Tomb Raider. There was a lot of variety that you could have just across different game genres that you really couldn't have in the 8 and 16-bit era. In the 8 and 16-bit era, you were mostly stuck with side-scrolling action games because that's what the system did best. That's what technologically, with the way it did backgrounds, with the way it did sprite generation, etc., that's just what the system did best. Now, you also, of course, did have adventure games and you had RPGs. It's important to remember that in this time period, the U.S. consumer did not like RPGs full stop. <gasps> Jeff and I were huge Dragon Quest fans going way back. We're huge Final Fantasy fans going way back. We were playing these games. We were enjoying these games. But these are games that would sell at most a couple of hundred thousand copies in the United States, often far less than that. They're selling millions in Japan. They are not selling here. So the RPG doesn't really enter into it. Certain adventure games do. Obviously, Zelda was popular. The RPG doesn't even enter into the calculus. You're mostly looking at shooters, run-and-guns, beat-em-ups, side-scrolling platformers, and then when you get to the uh, 16-bit era, one-on-one fighting games. You're looking at games that are innovating less and less as time goes on, and games where there really isn't that much difference other than some slightly shinier graphics between something you could buy on the NES in 1987 and something you could buy on the Super NES in 1993. I'm not in any way saying they're exactly the same. If you're looking at this from a perspective of keeping people interested in continuing to buy new product, well, you're starting to get into some trouble there. Then to make matters worse, you have the ever-increasing price of video games due to the cartridge format and the ROM memory format. $40, $50, yeah. $60, $70. Even up to 70 on some. And I, Final Fantasy VI might have even been more than that. It, it was just insane because the only way to top yourself in this time period, when you had already basically run into hard limits on the type of gameplay that you could do on these systems... The only way you could continue to distinguish your newer games and try to get people interested in your newer games was more, more, more. More characters, more levels, more animations, more explosions, more, more, more. What more, more, more meant 
was cartridges with larger memory sizes, and memory is expensive, and so that means rising prices of cartridges that are just getting absolutely out of control at this point. I've gone into all of this subjective stuff just to emphasize the point that by 1993, 1994, there really was some form of fatigue starting to take hold when it came to video games. And there was less and less mainstream interest in necessarily buying all of the latest and greatest games that were coming out because they were so similar to what came before and were ever more expensive at the same time. You also had another technological revolution happening at the same time that was threatening the console market because while things were becoming stagnant in the video game space, they were changing rapidly in the PC space. This was the period where the buzzword was multimedia. This is the period where there is a huge uptick in computers equipped with a CD-ROM drive and a sound card and VGA and perhaps even SVGA graphics. This is a period where new genres are coming up left and right because the greater graphical capability of these newer systems and the better interfaces of these newer systems allowed for brand new concepts like real-time strategy, first-person shooter, whatever the heck Myst wants to be, just all of these brand new experiences, brand new ways of seeing the world. And, you know, I make fun of Myst, rightly so in some ways, but let me tell you, when you put Myst up on a computer screen and then you put Super Mario World up on a screen, they each have their charm. But Myst is something that people had never seen before in a computer game. It was just stunning. Even though it was all still images, it was stunning. It really was. And I think this harkens to something that you're bringing to mind here that we both experienced. We both lived through this era, and Mm -hmm. we played our Super Nintendos and our Nintendo pretty religiously. Sure. I don't know about you, but somewhere around the mid-90s, we kind of transitioned away from playing the consoles so much to, hey, there's some really compelling stuff on this PC here. Absolutely. A little bit of money from dad or mom at Christmas, a few upgrades, and we can have some fun times here. We're talking Wing Commander. We're talking mm-hmm. Dune 2, the real-time strategy fight game from Westwood. Mm-hmm. We're talking World of Zine, if I wanted to do an RPG where I just explore <laughs> completely out there on a grids map. Absolutely. All sorts of crazy things out there that you can do with a PC. The one advantage I thought of even at that time the consoles had over the PC is that the PCs are constantly evolving. The right. consoles are static. Eventually, I, you will hit a point where it's going to be hard, if not impossible, to run those games the way you want to on those PCs, even on future PCs. But with a console, I slap that cartridge in, I slap that CD in there, it will work the same way no matter how much time progresses here. Now, I know we have emulators and stuff for a lot of old DOS games. Even then, there's some kinks. There's something weird that gets introduced because you are emulating this. You are changing the aesthetic there. And there's people who make some really good, very close to it, but 
there's certain things that just like the timing is just seals just slightly off if you live through the era or the music seems just slightly off with how the synthesizers yeah. were. I have somewhere in this house, maybe still, I'm not sure if I got rid of it, an old ISA, yes, ISA, <laughs> the big black <laughs> connector on your computer. Oh, no. Kids, you will not know this, but your parents will. Yamaha sound card. <laughs> I wish to high heaven I could get that thing to work on a modern computer because that thing had something special about how it played MIDI files. What's mm-hmm. a MIDI file, you ask? Well, just think of it just notes that the computer synthesizes notes for. You have one. It works. It sounds okay-ish. That Yamaha card? Oh, baby. <laughs> I love that sucker. <laughs> then when you had MIDI sounds that were on old games, oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You were a happy puppy. I have MIDI files that take advantage of that older style on a sort of like a music melody of... Dragon Quest 2, it actually took advantage of how those cards worked, where you could actually have the sound effect of walking upstairs that they used to do in the game. You play that same MIDI file on modern computers, you don't get that. Those yeah. sounds are gone. Those voices are gone. A little bit of a tangent here, but consoles have that advantage of they will always sound and play the same as long as the equipment's still working. The problem with PCs is things change so, so rapidly that... Any old game, it's next to impossible to truly preserve it unless you keep that old system somehow functioning. Yep, that's a big thing. And there were two other big things that had traditionally been barriers to PC because at at various times, PCs, and I don't just mean IBM PCs, but I mean before that, Amigas and other systems, always had certain advantages over consoles. But there were always two big roadblocks. One of those was cost, because to have a computer with all the bells and whistles is expensive. The other is wrangling hardware and wrangling memory to work with your game. And I know we've talked about this before, too. IRQ hell. Yes, IRQ hell and auto exec bat and config sys hell, where you're trying to figure out, okay, this game doesn't use a mouse. So let's not load the mouse drivers, which are taking up precious memory and, you know, stuff like that. These were real barriers, especially to a younger audience. But there were some trends that were starting to happen in this time period. The multimedia craze was very significant. Even though multimedia did not turn out to be this great, wonderful game changer that the analysts and prognosticators said it would be, the belief in multimedia was very strong which meant that parents were more inclined to get fancier PCs with a CD-ROM drive with good graphics and sound because they were being told this was the future of education and this is the future that the world and this was the future direction that the world was going in so we need to have these computers also the fact that the IBM PC had become a standard not just in the office where it had been a standard for a long time but it was also becoming a standard in the home as well prices were coming down on units because of the fierce competition between the clone makers even aside from the multimedia future thing there was this idea that more and more office workers more and more executives even were having to use computers as part of their everyday lives instead of that being something shut away in data processing or with a PC, with a personal computer, something that your secretary dealt with but you didn't. 
it was becoming a ubiquitous item as people's work-home life balance was continuing to shift and continuing to erode. There were a lot of people buying PCs, quite frankly, because they needed to bring their work home with them, and they used a PC at work, and so they had a PC at home. So you put these two things together, the work-from-home thing increasing and the price decreasing and the multimedia revolution being felt like it's on the way, computers are coming into the home and you can get a pretty decent system for not a terrible price. I mean, it's still going to be more expensive than a Super NES, but not a terrible price. Then the other aspect of that, the memory management and the peripheral management in IRQ hell, that was on the cusp of disappearing as well because a little Microsoft project called Chicago was on the horizon which was the code name for Windows 95. Windows 95 was on its way. That's a whole other story that we're not going to get into. It's not like the moment that Windows 95 launched, suddenly all games moved to Windows 95. In fact, a lot of companies persisted in DOS for a while longer. It was the beginning of the end of that just nonsense in trying to get games to run. Plug-and-play hardware, the DirectX suite of APIs, sane memory management. That all was coming in with Windows 95, and so a lot of those technical barriers to entry on PC and on PC games were just about to vanish, and and people knew this was coming as well. So there was a feeling that the current generation consoles were running out of steam at the exact same time that there was a feeling that the multimedia PC was going to dominate the home. And let me tell you, there were Everybody was writing about this. They were wrong. PCs did, of course, end up coming into the home in strong numbers, and the World Wide Web, I think it's fair to say, finally fulfilled some of the promise and some of the horror of what people thought multimedia sans internet was going to bring to the computer. Even then, the computer game market did not expand at the same rate that computer purchasing and computer adoption expanded in the home because the expansion of the World Wide Web was not in all ways synonymous with the expansion of, say, computer gaming, particularly not in this 90s period. I would say that the web really came into fruition starting in 1996. Absolutely. That seemed to be the real big tipping point, our big time where everyone and everything really started going online. Absolutely. It's it's Battle.net with Diablo is that year. Quake, which had better online matchmaking than Doom. I mean, I'm just talking about from a game perspective, but in many other perspectives as well, 1996, absolutely. Then I think really as far as games go, even though games, like you were just saying, 96 Battle.net was becoming big. As far as games go, that didn't really kick fully in, I wouldn't say until... 98, 99, 2000. Exactly. Everybody was wrong that the PC was going to overtake consoles as a gaming platform. But everyone thought this was going to happen. So even though it didn't happen, this plays a big role in how the market is developing in the mid-1990s, the period that we're talking about here. Because it was all over the trades. It was all over the news media. Multimedia PCs are coming and console is done. You were caught in this kind of strange situation here where there was a real gap 
between what console was doing, which was continuing to do this sprite-based, often tile-based kind of stuff, and the slowly emerging world of not just multimedia, but also uh, three-dimensional spaces via polygonal graphics. It felt like there was a gap here to be exploited because Nintendo and Sega weren't quite ready to move on to their next generation yet, but it felt like there was more that could be done than what they were doing. And so you got this very brief period of a free-for-all where everybody and their brother started looking into maybe doing something in the console space. The most notable of these would be the 3DO, Trip Hawkins project, and the Atari Jaguar, which was kind of the opening salvo in the 32-slash-64-bit generation, though, you know, it, it had a lot of its own problems. This isn't a Jaguar episode, so we're not going to get into that. And we kind of talked about them already. Yeah, but there's kind of this idea that everyone's trying to get in, and other companies like Taito and Konami, they look into maybe making systems. Namco does, too. They never do, because they decide that the it's just too expensive to get into the console market because by this point you have to spend so much money. There's kind of a feeling that this generation is is petering out, that the product isn't as interesting. The market is starting to get flooded with a lot of games, many of them at this point not very good. It's kind of a similar situation developing as developed in 1982 around the Atari market is you've got a fierce console war going. So, you know, when Nintendo brought the market back, they were very careful in limiting the number of releases on their systems. They had the slots. They had the five games a year. They were kind of strict on who they gave licenses to. Now, there were a lot of bad games on the NES. I mean, unquestionably. Uh, Just, you know, see LJN. You know, you look up bad video games in the dictionary, And there's the LJN rainbow logo right there. There was still a certain amount of care to exert some kind of control over the market. And then, of course, there was a massive chip shortage. That added another layer of limiting of the market on top of Nintendo's efforts already to limit the market by having some quality control standards. Even though they let bad games on the system, they tended to try to tailor orders to the quality of the game. So, yeah. LJN could release their crap on the NES, but Nintendo wouldn't make as many copies for them because Nintendo had complete control of the cartridge uh, production process. You ordered your cartridges from Nintendo. So LJN might say, we want to make 5 million of each of these games. They would have never said that. They weren't that dumb. But just for the sake of argument, they might say, we want 5 million of each of these games, but they couldn't actually make that. So they could only shoot themselves in the foot so much because Nintendo would say, well, that's nice, but how about we do 100,000 and then see how it goes? LJN, which I keep saying that, it it is at, at this point basically a name for, a secondary name for a claim, but LJN at that point doesn't have any recourse because they buy their cartridges from Nintendo, Nintendo manufactures them. Well, flash forward to the early 1990s and you have a couple of things going on. One of those is just that Nintendo has lost a lot of its control over the market. Because as useful as some of those practices were to stopping the market from just collapsing, they were monopolistic practices. The FTC started looking at Nintendo very hard. Attorneys general in multiple states started launching investigations. 
there was a lot of pressure on Nintendo to not exert as much control. They started letting companies manufacture their own cartridges. They eased up on exclusivity agreements. They still had slots, but they kind of became more generous on slots. There was less control over what was going on in the marketplace. Sega, you know, I'm talking about Nintendo. Sega really wanted to do a lot of what Nintendo did. They tried to be a controlling company in the beginning. They just weren't able to actually make that happen for a variety of reasons. So both of these companies had to relax their restrictions a little bit, which had the effect of letting more companies into the marketplace and more companies having their own control over how many cartridges they put into the market. You also had a console war going on. So you did have Nintendo and Sega trying to one-up each other. So you do have kind of a gold rush to get more games, better games, more companies, better companies on your side than the other side has. That also probably led to companies going a little more crazy on how many games were coming out and how many copies of those games they were manufacturing than was true in the NES era, which was a much more constrained and controlled market for a variety of reasons. You've got a lot of games flooding the marketplace. Not all of those games are great. I mean, you don't have nearly as many examples of the truly horrific games that came out from some publishers in the waning years of the 2600 market. But you still have games that are better than other games. You still have a lot of companies putting a lot of product into the market. That's really the same kind of situation that led to the market crash in 1982-1983. It wasn't nearly as bad as that, but it was there. So it's kind of the same things. What was causing the crash in 82? The, The main thing was having too many games, more games than there was market demand. You're not getting that as bad in this period, but you're starting to get it because of the factors I just articulated about loosening restrictions and increased competition. Substandard games. That's absolutely going on. A belief that the market may move towards home computers. That was something that was happening in 1982-83, that everyone was going to move away from an Atari VCS and an Intellivision because you could get a nice computer that could play all the games and balance the checkbook too. Now you have a situation where they think they're going to move away because you have these fancy computers where you can play all the games and get your child a multimedia encyclopedia too. All of this is happening. You have the same kind of situation where the gameplay is getting stale and repetitive and the arcade is not providing necessarily as much as it was because the arcade industry is in decline. Coin-op entered into a decline before console in the first downturn. It started in the middle of 1982, and Coin-op has entered a downturn in this time period as well. The Coin-op industry peaked in 1990, Coin-op video games, and have been declining every year since. There have been a couple of massive hits in there, like Street Fighter II, Mortal Kombat, NBA Jam, being the big three, and and Daytona, Daytona USA, let's make that a big four. You have some massive hits in this time period, which is something that you didn't have in 82 when the whole market dried up. The variety of titles is dropped. It's become a hit-driven business, and the overall revenue is once again falling in the arcade, and it starts once again falling in coin-op before it starts falling in console. Not anymore, because the coin-op market is irrelevant, 
that in these days, the coin-op market was a real bellwether for what was going to happen in the console industry, because a lot of times what coin-op was doing, console would do two or three years later in terms of game types or technology or whatever else. So when you see coin-op starting to decline in 91, 92, it stands to reason that a couple of years later, you're going to see some of the same happening in console because you're getting less out of coin-op that can drive you. Coin-op is still very important in the console market in this time period. As I said, Street Fighter II was the massive hit of 1992. Mortal Kombat was the massive hit of 1993. NBA Jam is going to be one of the massive hits of 1993-1994. Coin-op still matters very much in the console industry. But you're seeing a transition there, too. You're seeing the market decline, and you're seeing what's ever left there becoming more and more in the direction of polygonal games, which just aren't going to work on the Super NES and the Sega Genesis. They tried to bring a couple of those games to the Sega Genesis. It was... uh, Entertaining. (laughs) And, you know, there was Star Fox on the on the SNES, which was impressive for what it was, but it was still kind of slow and clunky. and It was very laggy. Too much things got on the screen. That thing slowed down. Exactly. Where does that leave us? That leaves us getting back to our chronology a little bit, and we're not doing an in-depth chronology like we did in, uh, in the NES launch episode, but 1993, we're somewhere between four and a half and five billion. It has really taken its toll to get there. We talked about in our Downfall of Sega episode just a couple of episodes ago that Sega clawed up to get about 60%, 55 to 60% of the North American marketplace. They did it by spending a lot of money. They are really not making money in this time period. They are either breaking even or making just a really teeny tiny small amount of profit on their North American operations because they're spending way too much money to try to make this happen. So even though Sega was successful, they were in a very precarious situation. You also had things that were going on economically that were working against this industry, because, of course, our two major console manufacturers are Japanese. So are most of the third parties. Most of the major third parties are Japanese. Electronic Arts and Acclaim are both huge, around $500 million companies each, and those companies are American, but all of the other significant third parties are Japanese. You have two things that are going on in this time period. First of all, because of the trade imbalance that had been growing out of control between the United States and Japan in the 1980s, where more and more Japanese goods were coming into the United States and were driving U.S. companies out of various businesses. But at the same time, Japan was not buying American products. They were getting our market. We weren't getting their market. I'm not taking sides in all of this. I'm just stating the situation as it existed at this time. Because of that trade imbalance, there was an agreement made in 1985 between the U.S. and Japan and maybe some other economic powers as well. I don't know. I'm not an economic historian. To start devaluing the dollar over a period of years with the idea that if the dollar is weaker, then the yen will go farther when you're buying American products and it might 
encourage more importing of American products into Japan. This is where we get the situation that we talked about a couple episodes ago in our Downfall of Sega episode, where suddenly the yen is becoming very strong in the early 90s. The primary reason it's becoming so strong is because there was a deliberate artificial devaluation of the dollar to try to affect this trade imbalance. Well, you know, a weak dollar is great if you're trying to buy something to bring into Japan. It's terrible if you're trying to make something in Japan and then sell it in the United States. So we talked about this with Sega in that episode where suddenly both Sega and Nintendo, we talked about it in the context of Sega before, but it was also affecting Nintendo. Both Sega and Nintendo suddenly found that they were not making as much money on their exports. That stuff they were selling in America, they were losing lots of money in currency exchange because they couldn't raise the price to compensate. They couldn't say, okay, well, the yen is stronger, the dollar is weaker, so we're going to raise the cost of the Sega Genesis or the Super Nintendo by $50 to compensate. This is technology now that's several years old. And what happens in technology is is as it gets older and cheaper to make, prices go down. It would be suicide, absolute suicide, to suddenly try to raise the price on the system. People would be incensed. They wouldn't buy it. So you couldn't raise the price to compensate, so you just had to eat that loss in currency exchange. The other thing, of course, is that Japan starts a very brutal recession at the beginning of the 1990s that came about due to rampant over-speculation in real estate that was also kind of related to the same currency exchange problem because of the devaluation of the dollar. A bunch of Japanese individuals and companies started buying up all sorts of American assets and started doing ridiculous speculation in American real estate. And then as that market started overheating, then they started investing more in real estate in Japan, and it just created this giant bubble which is why we call that 1980s economy the bubble economy in Japan that burst at the beginning of the 90s. And when the Japanese economy crashed, it crashed hard. They call it the lost decade for a reason. I mean, they didn't suddenly become a third world country, but that period of explosive growth and everybody had everything they could possibly want was just over. So they're dealing with a recession at home. They're dealing with a strengthening yen abroad that is eating into things. When you put these two things together, they start really losing money, and they would have lost money even if other aspects of the market were not going off. Just to give you an idea, in fiscal 1994, which was not at the end of 1994, it's mostly sales of 1993 for these companies, but they report out you know, in the middle of the year. So the 1993-1994 fiscal year. Nintendo's profits drop 41%. Wow. Exactly. They'd reached a high of nearly a billion in profits. We're not talking about total sales, but in profits, they fall to 468 million. 41% drop. Sega fares even worse because, remember, Nintendo is the supreme company in Japan. They're doing a lot of sales in Japan in addition to their foreign sales. Sega is almost entirely reliant on foreign sales. So Sega's profits for the 93-94 fiscal year drop 64% to $112 million. That practically explains why they died, apart from our episode. Yeah, both companies' stock really goes down. Both companies, you know, are projecting additional declines in profits over the coming years. 
Then in 1994, the video game market in the United States has a huge hiccup. It's all of these problems that we've been talking about. There aren't nearly as many interesting games. The systems are very late in their life cycles. There's the promise of new systems on the horizon. Everyone knows the Sega Saturn's coming. Everyone knows the Sony PlayStation is coming. They launch in Japan in 1994. Everyone knows the Nintendo 64 is coming as well. At this point, they think the N64 is also coming in 1995. Obviously, that doesn't end up happening. Everyone knows that there are going to be these three new systems coming at the end of 1995. You see a real decline in hardware sales. That's where the big decline is in 1994. Hardware sales start to collapse because people are waiting for the new systems. You also see a decline in software as well because there's been overproduction. It's just more and more companies getting in, more and more companies wanting a piece of the pie, less control over how many games companies can manufacture, everyone thinking that they have the hit of the season. Capcom gets surprised because Street Fighter has been such a consistent seller for them. They've milked it to death. They keep releasing a new Street Fighter game every year, and it only has minor changes or improvements over the ones the year before. So Capcom thinks they're going to sell a bunch of Street Fighter games in 1994, and they're wrong. They take a bath. They have to sell 2 million copies of various games, not just Street Fighter, into retailers at below cost just to clear out the inventory at close-out prices, brand-new games at close-out prices. Because there's so much new product pushing into the market, even product that's a year old stops moving because there's such a glut in the marketplace. Games from 1993 start getting discounted as low as $6 in some places. That's not common. It's not as common as your $5 bins you know, at the front of the store in The Great Crash were. But 1993 era video games are being discounted as low as $6 and tend to run in the $6 to $20 range. Even brand new games coming out in 1994 end up being discounted down to as low as $20. Wow. Brand new games. It's the same kind of thing that you saw in the overheated Atari market. There's too much product. It's not moving. So we have to do something to get it moving. KB Toys reported that its holiday sales in 1994 were 20% off where they thought they would be, 20% off the year before. It's too many uninteresting games. There's a new Madden every year. And while that works out pretty well these days, EA was seeing some of their yearly annual releases kind of drop. You were seeing Sonic the Hedgehog from Sega. You were seeing diminishing returns. Sonic 2 sold a lot of copies. Sonic 3 came out early in 1994 and sold a lot fewer copies. Sonic & Knuckles came out in late 1994 and sold even fewer copies than that. Sega has released a lot of Sonic games all in a row, and they're starting to see the effect of that. They're starting to see those sales drop as people get tired of just minor new releases. The one standout, obviously, that year is Donkey Kong Country. Nintendo, despite the fact that their profits decline, are declining in this period, Nintendo has a massive hit in Donkey Kong Country because it's the one game that showed something new. 
And again, when we look back at it today, the gameplay wasn't really that exceptional compared to other games coming out at the time, but it's just the graphics were so absolutely amazing. The music was amazing. It was... Well put together. Well put together game, exactly. And so it sold millions. It was the exception that proved the rule. Everyone bought Donkey Kong Country instead of buying new games from other companies. It sucked a lot of the oxygen out of the room by being that successful. Not to mention that it was so successful it became a tie-in game at one point with the console. Right, a bundled game. Yep. So a lot of companies were hit hard. EA was hit a little hard. Capcom was devastated. Capcom came very close to going out of business. Data East was hit very hard and never really recovered. They kind of petered out of the market not long after that. A few of the other smaller Japanese companies also hit a lot of difficulty in this period. Companies like Sunsoft and Irem and Tecmo started to see uh, diminishing returns. There was a winnowing out. Acclaim still had a good year because Mortal Kombat 2 was the other big hit of the year. So Acclaim was riding high. Nintendo was riding high. Nobody else was riding high. Some other companies were doing okay. But everyone else, it was mediocre to disaster. Konami was losing money. It was bad. And it was all of these forces that we've already talked about. To make matters worse, it looked like the new consoles were not going to save the market. Because at this point, the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo were both selling for about $130 at retail. Everyone understood that when you introduced a next-generation system, it wasn't going to be $130. Nobody was expecting that. You can't have your next-generation be too far ahead of your previous generation in price because that comparison just looks really bad and uh, people are only going to spend so much money to upgrade instead of just saying, well, you've already got a system. That system works just fine and there's games for it, so why are we going to you know, spend five times as much money? I mean, it wasn't five times, but just to throw out a, a number. The Saturn was going to be $400. People were pretty sure that the PlayStation was also probably going to be $400. It ended up being $300. Even when it was announced at CES in 1995 that it was going to be $300, both of these systems were over twice as expensive as current generation systems. The Saturn did come down to 350 once the PlayStation launched because they knew they couldn't be $100 above. You were still talking about systems going for $300 and $350, twice as much as a Super Nintendo Entertainment System. This had a real chilling effect on the market. There was a real sense that people might not buy these systems. We didn't talk about this in this context in our Downfall of Sega episode, but why does Sega do something like the 32X? In hindsight, it looks completely stupid. Atari releases the Jaguar and you're afraid of this little next generation thing, so you're going to release a stopgap system when your next generation console is coming out a year later? Why would you do that? That's the look in hindsight. But at the time, you have to understand the thought was, oh my God, we are not going to sell enough next generation systems. We are not going to sell enough Saturns. We are not going to sell enough PlayStations. We've got to do something to extend the market we already have. And that's kind of really the bigger picture of how something like the 32X comes about. In a way, it's why the Virtual Boy comes about at Nintendo. The uh, technology that went into the Virtual Boy was made by an American company, Reflections Technology. 
that went out and then tried to get companies to license it. They tried Sega. Tom Kalinske said, no, thank you. They went to Nintendo. Gunpei Yokoi decided to use that technology to create the Virtual Boy because he felt the same thing that we had already talked about, that the industry was stagnating, that the industry needed something new to lure people in. I'm sure he was also conscious of the fact that next-generation video game systems were going to be very expensive and out of reach of a lot of consumers. So in a way, the Virtual Boy was Nintendo's 32X. It wasn't trying to extend an old hardware standard like the 32X was, but both companies were looking for something, anything, that they could sell for cheaper and that could maybe provide a slightly different experience to bridge this gap because there was a real fear no one was going to buy next-generation systems. That fear actually proved accurate. Because in 1995, even though both the Saturn and the PlayStation sold units, you know, in the case of the PlayStation, sold a a pretty decent amount of units, it became very clear as 1995 gave way to 1996 that the uptake of these new systems was not great, especially Sega. I mean, the Sega Saturn's really struggling. Even the PlayStation, which is doing comparatively better, is not selling in the numbers that are needed to really sustain the industry. Things are getting kind of dark here. Meanwhile, you have PC games, and it's estimated that PC games, even though it's still a small market, it's estimated that the PC, multimedia PCs, are stealing about 15% of the video game market away from the video game makers. About 15% of the sales that would have been going to the consoles, and the console games are going to PC games instead. That may be a small number, but it's a number that at the time was expected to grow. And it's a number that by itself, even though it's small, is kind of bad when you have all these other problems. So in 1995, with the new systems coming out, the software market in 16-bit completely collapses. You know, in 94, you had the hardware market really go down and the software market also go down, but go down not quite as much. In 1995, the hardware market doesn't go down that much more because it already kind of collapsed the year before, but the software market completely collapses because in 94, even though there was a general downward trend, you had a few big hits like Mortal Kombat 2 and Donkey Kong Country, NBA Jam. In 1995, you had no real hits on 16-bit, nothing to really lure people in, nothing new and exciting. You also had a lot of companies cut back. Most companies deliberately underproduced product in 1995 because they had so much inventory left over from 1994. Capcom did this, Data East, Tecmo, EA, all of them went on the record uh, saying that they were restricting supply deliberately in 1995 and taking fewer orders because of what happened. Retailers tried to compensate by overordering Again, the same thing that happened in the Atari overheat. So there was kind of this cat and mouse game between retailers and distributors overordering and the software companies trying to figure out where the numbers should be. But rather than in the 82 market where the software companies decided the solution to that was to try to fill every order they possibly could, this time the solution to the overordering was, we don't care that you're ordering that much, you're not getting that much. 
it was a combination of natural market decline as the new generation systems launched, but also artificial constraints on supply because the 94 market was so bad. Software really takes a bath and the market declines again. What about also the combination of you don't have it all focusing so much on a single company? With the original crash, it seemed to really focus purely on Atari product. You didn't have other contenders that really contributed to that, really. While here, we do have two, maybe three major players going on. Mm -hmm. And I think that spread out of desire, that spread out of software, really helps cushion the entire blow as opposed to it all focusing on a single company that can't bear it. Yeah, no, I mean, that helps. And, and it's why you didn't see a lot of companies actually go out of business, probably. But you still saw a truly drastic reduction in the market. So I have three sets of figures. Like I said, every estimate was different at different times. So, but you'll see that with these three sets of figures from three different groups doing estimates at this time, that the drop is about the same. I have one market study, and this is the one that's way out there. I think it's inflated. I have one market study that says the market was topped out at $7 billion in 1993, which I think is too high. But they said the market fell from $7 billion to $5.5 billion in 1995. The other two are much closer. The MPD figures at the time showed that the market was worth $4.55 billion in 1993 and fell to $3.07 billion in 1995. Then kind of a third set of figures that were floating around a lot of the newspapers at the time said the market peaked at $5 billion in 1993 and fell to $3.6 billion in 1995. The numbers are different, but all of them have basically the same trend. There was a collapse between 93 and 95 of about $1.5 billion was sucked out of the market between those two years. And that's a big hit. Capcom took a bath in 94 and nearly went bankrupt. Data East never recovered. Acclaim took a bath in 1995 because Acclaim did really well in 1994. Even though the software market was falling apart, the hits were still selling well, and Mortal Kombat 2 and NBA Jam were two of the biggest hits. So in 1995, they chose to double down on the 16-bit market. They were one of the few companies that the few major companies that did not try to at least begin moving towards the next generation systems. They doubled down on 16-bit, and they lost hundreds of millions of dollars in 1995. Acclaim nearly went out of business, too. Everyone this time around mostly managed to save themselves, but you know, Acclaim, Capcom, both of those two companies came pretty close to the edge. That was the kind of the end of Acclaim's time as one of the great powerhouses. I mean, they persisted for another decade, but they were never the same again. In 1994, they were the equal of electronic arts in terms of how much revenue they were bringing in. Then those two companies' trajectories completely changed <laughs> with EA just doing better and better and Acclaim never recovering. This was bad. It was particularly bad for Sega. We're not going to go through the whole downfall of Sega because we just did that. Just to put it into perspective, at the beginning of 1995, Sega controlled about 25% of the worldwide video game market. You know, in the U.S., they controlled a bigger percentage of the console market. But when you go worldwide, you're also including Japan, where Nintendo did much better. 
This also includes the handheld market when we're doing this, not just the 16-bit console market. So, of course, when you add in the handheld stuff, Nintendo has a significant advantage in handheld all over the world. I say they still own it eternally. The handheld market as such is dead now. The cell phone market killed it. Uh, Switch is the closest thing to a video game system that is still living partially in the handheld market. But, you know, it's, it's a hybrid system. They're the only ones even remotely trying to even do a hybrid. They were the perennial champions of handheld. So when you put all of that together, Sega has about 25% of the market and $700 million in debt. You can see why the company starts falling apart in the latter part of the decade. Nintendo, at this point, even though their profits are down, they control about 75% of the worldwide market, and they have $3.3 billion in the bank. We're talking cash. We're not talking on paper. We're not talking stock. We're talking cash. Literally in the bank. Now, Sony's coming in. You know, Sega doesn't have a leg to stand on. The point where the market finally turns around is 1996. The savior of the market is actually Nintendo, which seems counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive when you know how it all ended up. Because obviously the N64 sold only a fraction of what the Sony PlayStation sold lifetime. So it's kind of counterintuitive that Nintendo was the savior again, but they were. The reason Nintendo was the savior is that the N64 finally comes out, fall 1996, and it only costs $250. I say only, that's a lot of money. But remember, part of the problem with the market was nobody had broken the $300 barrier on consoles, and that was really inhibiting uptake of new systems. Nintendo arriving on the market at 250 starts the process of completely turning this around. The N64 sells amazingly in late 1996 and early 1997. It's running neck and neck with Sony, and it looks like they may even ultimately defeat Sony in the United States, only talking U.S., I remember going out and spending close to $300 buying the console brand spanking new. Yep. Sony still has the advantage in total install base because they've been out longer. Pound for pound in sales, Nintendo is neck and neck and may even start out selling. Now, it doesn't end up happening. The reason for that is that the N64, because they stuck with cartridge, because their system was much worse to develop for, they did not get the same third-party support that the PlayStation did. N64 sales really start slowing in the middle of 1997 because there are no games coming out for it. Just nothing interesting is coming out for it. Plus, the games for the system are expensive. Because they're cartridge, they're much more expensive than PlayStation games. So once more interesting third-party games start coming out for the PlayStation, particularly Final Fantasy VII in 1997 is the main system seller that year, that tips things in Sony's favor, and then Sony goes on to win the generation. I think that the overall savior of the industry is still Sony. If Sony hadn't come in with the PlayStation, if it had just been N64 versus Saturn, I think you would have seen a continued decline of the market throughout the 90s. In the long run, Sony was the savior. They came in, they showed that something vaguely resembling 3D, because a lot of it was pre-rendered backgrounds, more 2.5D. They showed that you could do something vaguely 3D. They served as the platform for new uh, types of games like survival horror, stealth games. They finally made the RPG mainstream in the United States. 
they are the saviors overall. But in the short term, Nintendo was the savior. Nintendo turned around the market in 1996. After the N64 came in in 96, the narrative changed. People were like, PCs, what are those? (laughs) The PC market was no longer seen as a big thing. Several prominent companies in computer games that didn't have a strong presence in console games like GT Interactive started having sales issues because the computer game sales were not growing at the rate people thought they would. So once the N64 comes in, the narrative changes overnight. The competition between Nintendo and Sony drives down console prices. More and more good games start coming out on the PlayStation, which finally gets its groundswell. And then the industry takes off. And while there have been declines sometimes during market transitions, uh, they'll sometimes be like between the PlayStation and PlayStation 2 eras, there was a brief period where there was a decline in sales during the transition. Never again were they huge declines like we saw in 1994 or in 1982. They were always just little dips and people understood that that little dip was just due to a transition, not due to the whole industry falling apart. Up to the present day, who knows what will happen in the future, this is the last time that there was really a scary decline in the market. It was a decline that the news media were starting to say could very well be a crash, could very well be a repeat of the Atari shock. Hopefully, through this episode, you can kind of see why the narrative built to that point, what dragged the market down a little bit, and then ultimately why it did not end up being a crash and why the industry moved forward into its continuing, one would hope, glorious future that it still has today. How everything kind of played out there, I think it really does help that you didn't just have that one company that's being the focus Mm -hmm. point. You had Sega, you had Sony, you had Nintendo, all three of them bearing the brunt of that transition, bearing the brunt of the excess glut of stuff, bearing that challenge and trying to understand, oh, wait, let's see if we can do things better. And then also you have people who live through the previous crash and go, oh, oh, we're going off the rails here. Let's back up those uh, production <laughs> lines there, kids. We're going right. to push the brakes on this. We're going to be a little bit slower and smarter about this. So I think a combination of hindsight from the previous crash, a combination of you got people more able to bear the brunt of this thing, just the newer technology. And yeah, you did have Nintendo able to push below that $300 price point barrier, but you still had the true innovation of the era with the PlayStation. And yeah, you had the Saturn and it did things. Yeah, I mean, Sega was a casualty of all of this, right? Mm -hmm. But like you said... Unlike in the earlier period, because even though it was Atari, Mattel, Coleco, even still Magnavox kind of off in a corner, it was Atari's market. If Sega had been the only company this time around, that would have probably been bad because Sega had, I mean, this is a counterfactual. Things would have been a lot different if Sega had the whole market to itself. But still, Sega was a structurally weak company. So Sega was a casualty of this. But unlike the big crash where Atari going down meant everybody went down. This time around, Sega going down didn't mean everybody went down because Nintendo was still doing strong at the beginning with the N64 and Sony was there to pick up the slack with the PlayStation. So those two companies could prop things up when the third company went down, whereas in the original Atari shock, Mattel and Coleco did not have nearly the clout to 
shoulder the industry once Atari was down. Atari was the load-bearing wall of that structure mm. in 1982. Pretty much makes sense and explains all of that then. <laughs> now that we are in 2021, what will be our new adventure on January 15th? Well, we've been stuck on console for a while. We've been stuck on Japanese companies in console for a while. And we've been stuck on North America for a while. Why don't we go back across the pond and delve a little bit into the history of a little company called Sinclair. Good old Uncle Clive, Sir Clive Sinclair himself, who has a rather fascinating story, a company with a fascinating story, a guy that never really cared about computing, a guy who never really wanted to be in computers or never got what all the fuss was about anyway. Nevertheless, for a variety of reasons, ended up being the father of a truly vibrant, uh, unique, and thriving computer game ecosystem that persisted throughout the 1980s with first the ZX80, then the ZX81, and of course, uh, most significantly, with the ZX Spectrum. Kind of an overview of the Sinclair experience in the United Kingdom from when he first got into electronics, even before all this computer stuff, up through the end of his period of influence in the middle of the 1980s. Might be two parts, who knows, but uh, at least one part, if not two, exploring all of that. And certainly if you look at our computer history, the British computer market hardware and software episodes, a little bit of this will be repeat, but we're going to really focus in specifically on the ZX Spectrum and Sinclair and all of the stuff related to that. Exactly. All right. Well, we will see Uncle Clive and the ZX Spectrum next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs>